third question about the Batman because February happened. I'm sorry. <clears throat> I'm going to do that all over again. I'm sorry. February <laughs> did not, in fact, happen. Breaking news. <laughs> Leave that in. People like jokes. All right. Third question about the Batman because February happened. In honor of the Batman, what is your favorite overly complicated cinematic death? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Brad Pitt and Meet Joe Black, or at the very least, that gif of Brad Pitt and Meet Joe Black. Yeah, we only saw Meet Joe Black to see the Phantom Menace trailer, like real people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, my name's Dave the Seven, and I'm going to go with Hobbs in the movie The Stuff, where the stuff is an alive dessert that oozes out of Hobbs as he dies. It's, it's pretty great. This question, I'm David. This question's too, too vague. I don't know. There's so many elaborate film deaths. This is why we um, recommend you read the lightning round question. Well, in fairness, it, you know. for the, to give you guys a peek behind the curtain, you guys came up with the lightning round question eight seconds ago. So this is... Uh, I, I definitely had at least time. three minutes to think it over. <laughs> um, uh, I was busy thinking about Elden Ring, as I usually am these days. Um, I uh, Man, uh, can I say... Can I, can I just... Uh, can I go with the easy route here and just say Rose and Titanic? I mean, that's a very elaborate... Cinematic yeah. death. They spent three hours plotting it out. I came very close going with the propeller guy from Titanic. So yeah, I, uh, so I mean, I the, they're they're elaborate in very different ways, but I think both answers are respectable. Does um, Rose die at the end of Titanic, though? Been, I think it's so. been debated. I, think I mean, so this too. is like uh, God. We're already the, the next iteration of that debate. Although obviously, it won't have quite the same uh, longevity or impact. Is around. It's it doesn't matter when she died. She's dead. She's been yeah, dead for she's years. Dead. She's dead by now. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine. I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 382. It's, it, ugh, it's pandemic 102. It's the week of Wednesday, March 2nd. That's the day that in 1933, the original King Kong premiered at Radio City Music Hall, New York. Have you guys ever been to a movie at Radio City? Does, do they do that anymore? They have had premieres there over in relatively recent history. I feel like there was a Tribeca opening night. Screening for oh, a music doc, maybe yeah, that was there. Yeah, somebody played the organ. That yeah. sounds right. Um, but obviously not with the consistency that it used to be a movie theater back in the day, before our time. Yeah. Uh, I saw the Smashing Pumpkins there when I was on a trip with my mom, and they oh happened to be in town, and my mom, like, truly heroically, I think, went with me. I, I uh, saw my first of three, of the three Bjork shows I saw in the span of a single week when I was in college. <laughs> There, uh, they were at increasingly intimate venues, ending at the uh, um, at the Apollo, where I was about ending at my house where Bjork played, uh, ending at the Apollo, where I was about seven feet from Bjork for the entire show. But uh, it was at the Radio City Music Hall, the first of those shows, and my mom heroically uh, for the one concert <laughs> I've ever gone to with my mom because I thought it would be fun to show my mom the kind of music that I like. Uh, was there, and I just remember her being very confused as to whether to sit down or stand up. Mm. Did your mom find it fun to learn about the music that you like? Uh, I think if she did find it fun, like that was what she found fun about it, less than, yeah. you know, vibing off Bjork. Yeah. Well then, uh, I don't know if we had threatened to tell uh, old Radio City Music Hall stories in case people didn't leave reviews, but I hope not because do we have reviews maybe? We sure do. Hey! Uh, let's take a look at them. Um, 
do, do, do. Did we read the one about growing up in Aiken? No. All right. No. What? Uh, all right. Well, let's uh, well, let's blow through. We have four relatively short ones. Let's let's go real fast. Uh, let's do it, Matt. Oh, but Matt Patches isn't here. We should. Oh yeah. Have that. Matt Patches uh, uh, sadly no longer with us. We, he'll be back. <laughs> well, no, next we canceled. We canceled Matt oh, Patches. Like, Matt he Patches. Fake, he, like he canceled the show. <laughs> he's never. He's never coming back. Uh, um, just, one day he's not there, and we never <laughs> mentioned him again. You'll have to tune in next week to find out if he survives the call. No, we're just going to okay. replace him like they did on Viv and Fresh Prince, and not tell anyone. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> With another uh, like we- Pat matches, <laughs> <laughs> no one will know. Uh, we replace him with reviews. Okay. Yeah, no, he'll be back next week. Uh, Riftmark says five stars. One of my favorite podcasts. I've been listening for years, having followed Dave Seven from the GOT days. I was, hey. I obviously stayed for discussions for Talenti Pumpkin Pie Gelato. Mm-hmm. So good. Send me some for the love of God. If anyone knows anyone who knows anyone at Talenti or whatever parent company owes them, hook me up. This is me talking now, not our reviewer. I'll get back to them. My favorite fighting in the war room moment is probably the intro to the episode about Babysitter's Club because Katie mentioned growing up in Aiken. That was a pleasant surprise for me as I had recently moved there and I thought it was a funny coincidence. Wow. I've enjoyed the threat of, I mean, who among us? Is not listening to this podcast, having recently moved to Aiken. Well, South this Carolina. person should have been. She needs to go way back in the archives to my wedding when you guys were all there. That's that's yeah. the the Aiken Which took episode. Place in, yeah. <laughs> that that was my weekend. The one weekend of my life I spent in Aiken. Yeah, um, there you go. Seemed like a lovely town. I went on like time. a run in the outskirts and ran into some people on a porch that I thought um, were pretty maga types. Let's say. Uh, wow. and, uh, I also saw, and still have photos of this somewhere, someone walking a duck on a leash and the duck oh, was yeah. wearing a diaper mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that person. I don't know them, but like, I've seen that person. Great. Uh, <laughs> we, you, we know the duck diaper person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've enjoyed the threat, the threat of Galaxy of Heroes discussion. And with that being said, David and Dave Seven, please educate us. On Sith Eternal Emperor, I'm not going to do that right now, Riftmark. Thank you very much for your review, because that would violate the spirit of yeah. uh, what we do. We, there will be a time for that. I will say I was taken aback by the fact that it requires his own currency to spend on trying to farm shards for him once you've unlocked him, which I thought was bullshit, but to be expected in a gotcha game. We'll get to him if there's another episode in the reviews. We'll CB2, get to him in about six months. CB2 Step. Says Canvas Podcast. I never thought I'd say this, but I agree with David E. In the Oscar ceremony debate, I don't care much about shorts, but best score? I want to hear clips of the nominees. I want to see Johnny Greenwood or Hans Zimmer win, and I want to hear what they have to say. Also, the idea to air movie trailers like Comic-Con is brilliant. I don't know if that yeah. was originally my idea, uh, but, you know, I think it's uh, brilliant minds. You love Comic-Con minds. so much. You just we all love Comic-Con. The Fan, fandom mm-hmm. of uh, <laughs> movies. Well, there um, were movie ads on during the SAG Awards. And, like, we were going to talk about SAG Awards, but there were like FYC movie ads. And I was like, yeah, this. Yeah. Perfect. And I think if you put that on like super, super, super steroids is sort of what I'm thinking for the Oscars. But uh, yeah, that's right. We need at least five Morbius ads or I don't even know why we're holding the Oscars. <laughs> it's like they'll do it like those Miley Cyrus uh Dolly Parton ads in the Super Bowl where every ad teases the next one. Uh-huh. The next ad. Like, yeah. <laughs> Here comes Morbius. Um, the ad has a post credit. Ad, ad scene, a post credit of the ad tease of the next ad. Uh, oh boy, it's a it's a slippery slope. Uh, yes, but thank you, CB Two Step, for your report uh, for your support. Taylor Eliza Six says a Gen Z cusper weighs in. I've only been regularly listening to the show for a few months, but it quickly became part of my regular podcast rotation. 
The conversation about the Oscars this week was a fascinating one. As someone who's probably the target audience for the next generation of Oscar viewers, I tune in every year, but I definitely don't feel seen or catered to in any meaningful way. I'm not sure I have a grand solution, but I definitely think finding a way to eventize it would work. I love things that feel universal to people my age. This is a side note, but the idea of Marry Me coming out in 97 was very funny to me, since that's the year I was born. <laughs> oh. And my cultural cachet of both J-Lo and Owen Wilson is definitely, probably, not for either of the things they are most famous for. Great show. So glad to be a weekly listener. Taylor Eliza Six, we are so glad to have you I want to know list- um, listener. what she associates them with now. You know? I just want to say that I strongly covet the Gen Z cuspers out there uh, as listeners. <laughs> so I, I really appreciate that. I, I was curious, Taylor Eliza Six, if you had even heard of Anaconda, let alone seen it piecemeal on cable a thousand times over the last mm. 20 some odd years. Um, if you haven't, Go check that out. It's a wild ride. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen Anaconda because I did not have HBO as a kid. I don't. I can imagine like the poster, but I don't think I've ever seen it. I mean, John Voight. Really yeah, you could get it at the Blockbuster. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I, uh, I drove past my uh, childhood Blockbuster in Aiken when I was there over the weekend. It's now like a spine center. So uh, RIP to my Blockbuster. Um, and finally, BM Kingery says gelato and cinema. I'm writing this review both to stop the boys from chatting about some little Star Wars game designed to have children destroy their parents' money. And also, okay, they're not destroying their parents' money. They're simply passing it on to someone else uh, from their parents to a giant corporation. I made my own money to spend on the dumb Star Wars game. I own every single one of those ones and zeros that can be deleted off my phone at any time. Like, money doesn't exist, technically, in the first place, unless we're not playing with cash. (laughs) And second of all, money is a construct, construct, but uh, second of all, uh, it's not being destroyed, it's being passed along. But I appreciate your point. (laughs) And also to thank David for bringing Talenti pumpkin pie gelato into my life. Hasn't been in my life in a minute. Oy. After his constant ravings about it, I finally stumbled into a grocery store that had it. Only the layers version. I think that's all they make now. I think if you found a pre-layers version, we it would be like finding. We definitely talked about yeah, this last week. This would be like finding. Someone else mentioned no, this is a different review. review. I'm, I hope people bring it up I know. every week. No, I'm this just is the say, theme of the reviews now. If you find a pre-layers version of Talenti pumpkin pie ice cream, it's like finding a Quaalude in you know 2022. It's wild. <laughs> um, and oh, what a delight. It should take up half the ice cream aisle. Also, I suppose I'm writing this because after discovering Fighting in the War Room via the host that will go on blank check and actually plug it, it has become one of my favorite podcasts. Once I finish watching a new movie, these folks are some of the first I turn to, even when I wildly different from their opi- differ from their opinions on a film, or when I almost reach a breaking point on the amount of times Ehrlich can interrupt someone on a single episode. Katie, would you say that's ever happened on an episode of this show? That you've interrupted No, it hasn't. No, that's definitely right. Not. I'm also fascinated by their takeaways <laughs> on the movie. See, we do bits, like Blake Yeah, <laughs> <you know? see? laughs> I must, I must listen. Thanks for all the hours. Sincerely, Michael Los Angeles. Okay, I think you're missing a comma there, but I'm also really in love with the idea yeah, that Michael your name Los is Angeles. Michael yeah. Los Angeles. He's an excellent <laughs> private detective. <Yeah. laughs> or, or just an excellent anything. Like, I would buy Michael Los Angeles uh, face masks. I would buy Michael Los Angeles uh, car wax. You got Michael Los got Angeles would be a show that would last for seven wonderful episodes on ABC before being, you know, ethered into oblivion. Don't um, call him Mike L.A. He doesn't like it. If you, Michael Los Angeles. That's that's absolutely. I don't know if that would be the tagline. But it would absolutely be a character trait that comes up in the pilot. Um, if you would like to leave us a review, they will be 
read live on the show, uh, go on Fighting in the War Room, or actually go on iTunes, search for Fighting in the War Room, or, uh, you know, less directly, you can email uh, us at, what's the email address, F-I-T-W-R dot podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, we, don't, we only check that so often, so, you know, if, unless, uh, unless you can't leave us a review on our iTunes store because you're not in the United States or have access to iTunes, um, do it here. Otherwise, email us. We'll still love you for that. Thank you. I'm with the show. You the cooling man, you send you up. Freezing cool and nine two's oh. All right. All right. So, uh, sorry to keep talking, but uh, no one else knew <laughs> what to do with the segment because it was my harebrained idea. So you got me for a little while longer. It's in the dock as video games. Video games, yeah, video games. Sure. What a con- what a concept. Um. So an idea that I was toying around around Horizon Forbidden West is that we are currently in a really hot streak of big open world, very expensive video games. Um, a couple weeks ago, saw the release of Horizon Forbidden West, which is a sequel to Horizon Zero Dawn. Um, the this week, uh, just a couple of days ago, saw the release of Elden Ring from From Software, the makers of the Soulsborne games uh, like Dark Souls, Demon Souls. Bloodborne, Sekiro, etc. Um, and Elden Ring is a Zelda Breath of the Wild-like open-world adventure that takes the gothic hack-and-slashery of Dark Souls and puts it into a you-can-go-anywhere-at-any-time, you-even-get-a-ghost-horse-to-ride-on uh, beautiful open world. Um, and I have also, to my most re- mostly regret but great addiction, been playing a lot of Genshin Impact, which is a Chinese uh, gotcha game which has made the studio who made it a truly gobsmacking amount of money. Um, it was like $500 million last year or something crazy. Um, it works on the same principles as the stupid Star Wars game Dave and I talk about, but expands it into, again, a giant Zelda Breath of the Wild, like enormous, and in this case, constantly, because it's an online game for the most part, constantly growing uh, super world. It's sort of anime style. There's Can new I ask content you a stupid question yes. to interrupt you briefly? Yes. What's a gotcha game? Okay, so it's not a stupid question at all. Um, and I'm gotcha- imagining it like a gotcha question, Sarah Palin stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, Katie, that's a real gotcha question here, asking me <laughs> a simple fact. Oh, God, I'm sorry to the I Gen th- Z cuspers listening to the show. that this is going to become a culturally iconic moment and something that will hold a grudge against you for the rest of my life. Um, yep. uh, a gotcha game is essentially a game where you um, can roll like a, a randomized die for items or characters, um, and there's an incentive to, uh, or you're able to use actual money to uh, get more opportunities to roll that die. So it's like, um, yeah, it's like like a slot machine, essentially. That's not what the game is. It's just kind of how uh, people who are playing the game can get currency in the game or get new characters. So you don't have to spend money, but it's... Right, so all these games are free to play. Like, not the games we're talking about, but the gotcha games are free to play. Um, and like Genshin Impact, which cost you know eighty million dollars to make or something like that, is a free game to play. But uh, because there are and people do play it for free, I spend pretty little money on it. But um, because there are such big communities of super super users who will spend you know all of their pa- they'll destroy all of their parents' money playing these games. <laughs> um, they they become very very profitable and uh, a game like that, Genshin Impact which is a single player game but it's uh, you have to play connected online and there's constantly new content 
Um, there's like a five-year roadmap for the game. There'll be new reasons to spend money for it for a long time to come. Anyway, the point of the segment okay. Okay. is that uh, it's really focused around uh, Elden Ring and Horizon Forbidden West and, and to an extent the Zelda game, um, which is that I'm playing these open-world games. They're A games, incredibly expensive to make, worked on for years. And I find that the more expensive these games get, the better and sort of more immersive they become. The more realistic, I don't know realistic is the right adjective here, but the more sort of immersive, uh, the, 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 the more money that's spent on them, sort of the more transportive the experience is. Whereas I find, you know, as a professional hazard in all of the, the big studio movies that I see these days, the more money that's poured into those, the more plastic and uh, inauthentic they tend to become, the faker they feel. Um, and obviously comparing video games to movies is apples and oranges and, and sort of will lead you into all sorts of false equivalencies and dead ends. We're talking about different technologies. We're talking about, um, you know, animation versus working with live action for the most part. and um, how you are diluting the real world in terms of using CGI in movies versus building a constructed world, uh, you know, out of polygons in these open world video games. But I think there might be something beyond that, beyond the ones and zeros and the, and the tools that are used about the immersion of of how, like, why it is that these these games are becoming so much more um, there's just like the more the more meat on the bone. I guess it's, it's hard to separate from the industries and the way they work. Um, and I find that is sometimes reviewing video games that like invariably the triple A video games, unless it's like Cyberpunk 2077, will be very good. Whereas the you know, huge blockbusters in Hollywood will oftentimes be the the you know reliably mediocre. Um, but I wonder if there's something there about or there's it's a roadmap to where these industries are heading. Um, if they're just too different for there to be comparison, or if, you know, ultimately movies can learn anything from these games. And I, I may be, I mean, Dave, I think has some familiarity with the games I'm talking about and Katie, I'm yeah, sure you I'm might have some fun questions. To, I'm trying to figure out what metric we're trying to aim for here while judging it, because I don't doubt that the games are more immersive, but because that's just the nature of the interaction right. that you have with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when video games were, you know, invented uh, while uh, we were alive, basically, uh, the types of like side scrollers or like Zelda being top down, those all felt expansive and huge. But now we recognize them as something that runs on the power that, you know, an old phone used to have. So uh, I, I guess the the... The reason I think you might feel it, just from a storytelling perspective, and I learned a little bit from this, not only with, uh, I've been grinding the Pokemon game for a long time, uh, but also played some of the open world games. Uh, that and Dave there's a Pokemon about. open world game coming later this year, they just announced. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be, it's going to be, a, it's the new thing. Uh, but I think the reason why you're seeing this trend uh, work so well is Zelda really proved that uh the immersion and the open world aspect um was a systems that they could clear and then they sort of built like a game on top of those systems so they made like the they nature built, work like the, the open world thing was like a uh like a framework they could then put more things on top of like you spend all the money to make the open world and then it 
help yeah and people are still people are still playing zelda because um they built a physics system first and then sort of mapped a game onto it uh i think the same thing happens when you have like these triple a games like elden ring where you're hiring like george r R. martin for a lot of money to write all of your lore and fill in all your gaps the first bar you have to clear is does it look good and does it play good whereas i think a movie being immersed in a movie isn't necessarily a bar that I think a movie has to clear in order to be successful at getting whatever it wants across. So I do think that games are targeting that uh, first, but I do think that like there are still more, there are still mediocre movies with better stories than any mediocre game because the point of the game is the gameplay loop. And so if you spend all your time doing that, it could be colored boxes it could be, you know, Best Fiends or whatever people. It could be a gotcha um, and Best still have fiends. that addictive impasse. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's It's worth pointing out that these open world games, um, while they often have incredibly involving worlds um, and, and, you know, they're really delightful to sort of run around for hours upon hours on end, the narrative pull isn't nearly as strong in them uh, by design as it is in something like The Last of Us Part Two, let alone comparing it to, to films. Um, you know, I think Horizon Forbidden West tries its best. There is a very clear and somewhat linear story that's being told. I mean, I don't know about very clear. It's incredibly convoluted what that story is. But, uh, you know, they have like Angela Bassett and Carrie Ann Moss voicing these characters, and they put a lot of sort of emotional oomph into them. Um, whereas Elden Ring, which is uh, partially written by George R. R. Martin, um is a or you know he's he's heavily involved in it it's very little of his imprint in the game itself it feels very much in the the from software tradition is also in the from software tradition told ambiently there are no real cutscenes. um you're sort of getting the story through um it's it's aftermath through the lore through the ruins that you explore it's sort of this uh ambient sense of history that you're taking in but they are not great vehicles for story, these open world games. I mean, the story of Zelda is like, Ganon's bad, kill him. Yeah, I mean, the the thing that I've actually been thinking about this more with recently is uh, watching uh, the reviews of the Galactic Star Cruiser Star Wars Hotel. Oh, yeah, I just read some, yeah. Because mm-hmm. that is something that is based around you're going to a place and everybody shit talked how it looked, but from what it looks like from the execution, I'm not going to say is it worth $6,000, but it's interactive theater. Every time you're in there, you're basically flipping invisible switches to decide what experiences with what actors you're going to have. Mm -hmm. But you're doing that under the guise of being in this like fake star Wars hotel. So I think like the game loop works but it does it feel immersive like you go anywhere? No, you're in a very small building. You're not basically allowed to leave. And they shuttle you out to one park in Disneyland. And they're not really encouraged to go outside of just like the Star Wars age. So it's an on-rails experience. But within that experience, it's all be- built on different narrative paths you could take. So it's like the open world of storytelling where you restrict the process, but try to build narratives within that. I feel like that's closer to something like a sleep no more, which is closer to a theatrical experience mm-hmm. where yeah. it's like you have beginning starting blocks, you have middle starting blocks and you have end starting blocks and you could arrange the blocks in a way that becomes, you know, good for you. But I think the difference between that and like a game that is both open world and you're telling the story 
is I haven't really had an open world game where I'm like, oh my god, I feel like I could do anything, and I feel like my choices change the ending of the game. Because most of the time, it doesn't, period. And second of all, if it does, it's, we're not at that point of game complexity yet where I'm immersed in the story, I'm immersed in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I wonder if there's like, there, there's just something about, and it's hard to extrapolate from one medium to another, but there's something about the degree of, of detail, of possibility of, of attention and wonder that you get in these open world games that is so sorely lacking from uh, the studio movies these days. And I wonder if also it's just kind of the specificity. Like, you know, we'll talk about the Batman uh, in a couple of weeks, but one thing that I really admired about the Batman, you know, whatever its flaws as a movie, is that it actually, like, has a very clear directorial point of view and vision, and it's consistent throughout its three-hour running time. And I think that, you know, when you I watch something like Spider-Man Far From Home, which is designed to be Walmart, it's junk food, it's... Uh, it's everything is just sort of the lowest common denominator and to make it as undifficult as possible for the audience to um, understand where they are in that, that I, I don't get that element from some of these games. So Genshin Impact, yes, sometimes, but like, I don't know. I, I just want to get direct all directorial point of view from the games. You don't you, get the you do. it's, genericness. You don't get, you don't get the, you do get directorial point of view, uh, particularly when they're work and which is really impressive because they're such big sandboxes and you still feel the artist touch in what you're doing. Um, and which takes me back to that age old argument about like how video games can't be considered art because there's too much sure. agency that the players have and you have so much agency in these games. But I think that's sort of fly in the face of that because it does feel no matter what nook and cranny you're looking at in the giant land between uh, where uh, Elden Ring takes place, you do feel like it was, you know, made, it is a, a product of art and allowing for art to happen there. But I, I guess I just wonder sort of more abstractly and obviously I have no clear piece on or answer on this which is why it never turned into an article but mm. um because this podcast is where you know bad article ideas go to die but mm -hmm. i think that like the uh I, I just wonder if there are lessons that hollywood can take into that medium into the medium of film from these games and how like their the dollar that they spend there goes so much further into feeling a feeling of legitimacy and authenticity and the dollar um, that you spend in like building the world yeah, of, your, yeah. of your movie. I, I mean, mean, we're okay. we're getting close. Sorry, go ahead, Katie. Um, well, I had talked about mentioning uh, Cal Buchanan's Mad Max book, which doesn't make sense to do as a segment, but there's a lot of talk about the effort they put into building those cars and into um, setting that movie where it is and how much you feel it when you watch it on screen. And, and I don't know if they'll ever make a movie like Mad Max again, but I think that's a great argument toward what you're saying, David, about just putting in the effort. I was yeah. going to say, ILM has the volume, and the volume runs on, like, Unreal Engine and Unreal game engines, essentially. So at least visually, we're getting close to what you're talking about. Um, I don't know if that's going to make you feel any better. Uh, no, I guess it's just that, like, you know, the more money the games spend, the more real they feel. Uh, even, I mean... It, it, again, that doesn't really apply to something like Genshin Impact, or even the games aren't aspiring to feel real. I mean, they're aspiring for certain textures to be realistic, I suppose. Um, and the characters, like in Horizon Forbidden West, the character models are insanely real. But it, it's just like every dollar of computer animation that's spent in movies makes them feel less real, and that's just such a striking dichotomy to me. Um, these, I days. mean, there, I, yeah, yeah, I think it's a skill level too. So the other day, I was watching. Man of Steel, the ending fight again, uh, because it came up on this YouTube show I watched about special effects. And they're like, watch that fight 
because that's somebody who knows like about physics applying it to unreal superhero physics so they were talking about how like when most people jump in movies because we're used to seeing it on wire work they'll do this sort of like float in the middle over the gap or whatever but in reality if you were to like neo in the matrix jump across you know uh, two buildings your acceleration at the beginning has to be like a bullet to carry you through the air wind resistance to carry your weight across that distance so you wouldn't actually see the beginning of the jump it would just sort of be like and then they're in the middle of the air so the idea that like man of steel cgi is what if we take like these dumb things and apply physics to it occasionally looks like it's supposed to but i think the difference between like a game and like a movie is i could have a game that has a physics engine and i accept that as its physics engine again because i'm like living in it i'm not necessarily being told a story in it if i see a guy in a cape get punched to the ground i i my mind thinks it knows what that looks like but it doesn't so you hit like this weird cross where i'm living in a world of physics and unless the movie itself stops in the first act to talk about how gravity exists otherwise it's just something that you know can completely go by your mind so i i'd like i get what you're saying but to me, it's like a game is a whole bunch of artists uh, at the top of whatever type of artistry they do, whether it be like uh, 3D mapping or placement or anything like that. I'm not saying visual effects artists aren't that, but then you add on that they need to be interactive systems. So even in visual effects, you have people who specialize in just simulations because they need to be so many like water systems that run at the same time to make it look realistic. So I think maybe... We're, we've just hit that sweet point, like the anti-Uncanny Valley for video games, where we accept a certain amount of chunkiness in video games, and the systems are so good and overwhelming that it feels better, but I don't think there's anything in Elden Ring that looks more realistic than the fact that like most of the ground underneath all the car scenes in No Time to Die are completely fake. Mm. Like, we're there. It's just about how do you artistically integrate the systems to make better storytelling. Yeah, I don't know. Clearly, uh, clearly, I'm, I'm not anywhere interested with this thought yet. But uh, I do know that I'm willing to play another 80 hours of Elden Ring to uh, to get there. I can't get Elden Ring yet. It's it uh, would, yes, it would eat me. It would eat me in the in the time. As a final note, David, I just I don't have an answer for any of this, obviously, but I find it interesting that you seem to be finding in these huge big budget video games something you are missing in big budget movies that you can't quite put your finger on but like as someone who is professionally subjected to these movies you might not otherwise mm. like um mm. I'm, I'm i'm glad you have it even if i don't understand <laughs> it and i don't seem like you do either I'm going to make you guys talk to me about the SAG Awards for a quick minute. Um, obviously, yeah. it's on my mind. Dave, I don't know if you watched it. Did you watch the SAG Awards? Nope. I, I have vague ideas that the Squid People won Squid People, yeah. My uh, Squid People text message thread sprung to life after months of being dormant with wow. celebratory uh, text messages. Yeah, uh, they seemed very happy to win those awards. I was, uh, I was happy for them. Um, I enjoyed the SAG Awards, I, especially after our screaming about the Oscars last week. I found it interesting to watch a two-hour award show um, that really went by pretty briskly. SAGs are structured differently than Oscars and I think have different goals, but I don't know, David, was it an argument for having a quicker award show? Did you like 
Uh, uh, I mean, my my answer to that is I didn't watch a single fucking second of the Sags because who gives a <laughs> shit? <laughs> like, you know, wow. like uh, I didn't even know they were happening. Uh, I like who cares? It's a okay. Who tr- I I only cared about the Sags when Parasite was nominated, which I guess the uh, the comparison could be like you know bringing people to the Oscars because a movie they like is nominated, but. Um, the fact that the show is two hours on, like, ABC3 or whatever channel it's airing on, I don't know, it's airing on Kyle Buchanan's Twitter feed is where I'm getting my information, uh, that, like, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter. If it were a six-hour I mean, super show with ads and a pre-show and, and all the shit that goes with it, you know, I guess for sure it has a pre-show I feel, I feel but, this is a little bleed anyway. over from last week. Yeah. Katie. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I mean, but Katie, Katie did point it I, right, right in my direction. I, I'm not I, trying I, to devil's advocate here. I mean, the Zag Awards have always been two hours long. Like, I, I don't know. think they're doing it like, to like, prove a point. Anyway, sorry, Dave. Um, uh, Will Smith, is he, is he our best actor this year? Yeah, he's going to win, I think. He gave a really good speech. And uh, he, and I said this in Little Goldman too, like, he is a very famous actor who like, clearly doesn't need anything. And he seems kind of aware of it as he like, you know, gives this very nice and, and gracious speech. But kind of makes it more about the girls who play Venus and Serena and his co-stars and like the the cast as a whole. Um I feel like he was giving like really good big movie star energy up there and it's not mm. something we've had in a long time. And like Can- the tr- true Jessica Chastain too who was like not as big a star of Will Smith as Will Smith obviously and it's in this movie that was divisive at best maybe um but her like genuine surprise and heartfelt speech and like really well done speech. Like I love seeing a speech that puts an entire awards campaign in motion. Um, Katie, I would guess that the winners of the SAGs are more predictive of the actors category at the Oscars than the like the best ensemble category is the best picture because like the acting, you know, like yeah, the, the, yeah. I, I, yeah. So like Will Smith, you would say, you know, is is pretty certain, and that also bodes surprisingly well for Jessica Chastain. Uh, the the best actress thing is really a lot more mysterious. Like I think it's been really hard to pick a obvious front runner in that group. And in the Oscars, there's three previous winners: and Nicole Kidman, Penelope Cruz, and Olivia Coleman, and then Jessica Chastain and Kristen Stewart. Um, both of whom are like the only nominees for their. I guess Tammy Faye got a makeup nod. Mm. Um, but you know, representing movies that are not especially well liked. So um, that best actress is a is a fun one. Now, best ensemble went to Coda. Sure and did. And I, Troy Kotzer won a uh, right. solo award. And I, I, that movie only has three Oscars, and a movie has not one Best Picture that only three has Oscar nominations. Three Oscar nominations, rather. Thank you. Uh, since like the '30s, but um, I said to someone on the internet, Esther Zuckerman, maybe um, that shout out to the great Esther Zuckerman um, early on in the show after uh, Troy Kotzer won that I had a feeling that Coda could win Best Picture, um, and I was laughed out of the virtual room. Um, and then it went on to win Best Ensemble, which again is not, you know, four out of the five most recent Best Picture winners have not won uh, Best Ensemble. Parasite was the only one that did. Um, so it's not necessarily predictive, but um, I do feel like the CODA stock is rising. Yeah, um, definitely. And do you, do you see that as a possibility even? Um, it's definitely a possibility. I like that the Best Ensemble Award exists for awarding kind of exactly what it did, like not a movie that is like the largest technical achievement or like even the most like thematically rich, but like an ensemble of actors who are doing really good work together. And I think you can, can't argue that Coda has that going for it. I mean, Hidden Figures had that going for it. It won a couple of years back, not an especially uh, great movie. Um, and what I would say about why 
Coda would be unlikely to win. You know, it's, it's, it's a small movie. It's an indie. It's like, you know, it doesn't have like huge technical achievements is like exactly what you'd probably say about Moonlight. So anything is possible. Um, it does seem like it, like the Oscars have been going, you know, in, in, a, in a way that's caused consternation for the people at ABC that they've been sure. trending towards a more niche direction, rewarding uh, generally better films than they yeah. they had for a while. Um, smaller films um, that really did start with, with Moonlight, this recent run of them uh, where Green Book was the outlier. Uh, but Coda to me feels like somewhere in the middle, like the, emotionally in terms of how broad it is, seems like it would be a revision towards Green Book or more traditionally Oscar type movies. Sure. Um, it, you know, such a maudlin tearjerker. Um not even maudlin, just sort of very saccharine. But uh, sure. But it also is that small indie that was at Sundance. It does feel like you know either it'll it'll be split down the middle and and come up empty for that, or maybe it can sort of thread the needle. Um. Yeah, and, and especially if you think the power of the dog is like maybe too alienating. Apparently, it's Sam Elliott went on Mark Maron talking about how he hated yeah. it. So you know, there's one Oscar voter. I mean, it is a weighted, it's a weighted battle. So like Power of the Dog was a sort of presumptive front runner. Yeah. May still be. I would say it still is. Yeah. But, you know, Sam Elliott um, is an indication. As goes Sam Elliott, so goes the nation. I mean, it's, it's, if, you know, with with the weighted ballots, um, a movie that is polarizing, even if it's something that people really love, you know, can can run into trouble. Um, And Coda, I think, is going to be number three or four on a lot, a lot of people's ballots, um, which may be enough to put it over the top it's hard yeah. to say i mean we're all spitballing now we don't have enough precursors for the next couple of weeks but um, yeah there's gonna be a bunch uh over the next few weeks i'm just shocked it's will smith yeah <laughs> who would you I mean, who, would, who would get your vote did you really think he was gonna die without winning an oscar <laughs> i mean are you suggesting he's not. dying yeah. soon no i, I didn't know say, we were, like this we was gonna happen goodbye to will smith no it's like this was gonna happen at some point it may as well be now I just always make the mistake of actually liking other performances more and assuming that means they're going to win. And uh, that's that's not how award season works. That's okay. This is what the SAG Awards are for on some level, you know? Like, you get to another chance to award something from a reasonably respectable group. Like, the Critics' Choice Awards get kind of dumb because they just follow the lead of everybody else. But BAFTAs can pick weird stuff, too. Like, award season is long, and it's not just about the Oscars, and it's interesting to watch kind of the ebbs and flows of who's getting the most attention. I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from up and down, and still somehow, it's cloud illusions I recall. I really don't dare, dare I? I mean, this is my episode, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess I, I will dare to start another segment, but I, uh, I, as listeners of this podcast will know, am an ardent supporter of the filmmaker Josephine Decker, uh, who has made, among other things, the remarkable Madeline's Madeline and Shirley, um, in addition to her fascinating earlier work. And uh, I am also, as attendees of my wedding will remember, um, a very, very big fan of Jason Siegel, in particular, for getting Sarah Marshall. Um, And so uh, the fact that they made a movie together... Yeah, that was uh, co-produced by A twenty four. I mean, all these things feel like it was made explicitly, maybe exclusively for me. Um, As a teen girl with a lot of feelings. Well, that's Mm -hmm. here we go. I mean, uh, and yet 
I felt curiously distant from the fact and kept seeming to forget the knowledge that they were all those things were coming together to make one movie called The Sky is Everywhere. And uh, I could not believe that two weeks after it premiered on Apple TV Plus, where you can watch it right now, uh, I had still not seen it. Um, I didn't review it for work that honor befell uh, Kate Urbland. And so I just, uh, yeah, and it was just wild to me because, you know, anything in most circumstances, I would have been first in line. Now it is a, it, it, it is for Josephine Decker, who is very much an auteur, who generates her own projects. This is something of a work for hire job. It's an adapted adaptation of a YA novel of the same name written by Jandy Nelson. Um, who, and, who also adapted the screenplay, right? Yes. And she did indeed. And so th- this was, uh, well, you know, a work for hire implies a certain impersonality, which we'll get to. Um, and I don't think fits this movie. Um, it, it was something that uh, she just, Josephine Decker sort of came aboard to rather than generating herself. Um, and, but what really I think got to it is that it's, it's a YA story and it didn't play at a festival. And the stink of YA combined with coming from this, this in my mind, major director, but not press screening, you know, there were links and then it just appeared on Apple TV Plus with very minimal fanfare. It, it, it just felt like the world kept insisting to people, even people who might be interested, that this wasn't um, worth your time, which is bonkers to me and especially bonkers now that I've seen the movie. But um, I loaded it onto my iPad for a recent flight to L.A. where I was there for a wedding uh, last weekend and I watched it after getting through my prerequisite four hours of Love is Blind. <laughs> um, I, I started watching it somewhere over Colorado, I think. Uh, hi, Dave. And uh, uh, I cried so hard <laughs> watching this movie on my iPad, again, in a plane, but still, that the little girl who was sitting in the seat next to me, she was uh, 10 years old. I can't remember her name because she told it to me with a mask on. And even though I asked her to repeat it, I still didn't catch it. So I was just like, okay. Um, <laughs> sitting next to her sister made me a bracelet, uh, tapped me on the shoulder and said, would you like me to make you a bracelet to feel better? And she did. (laughs) And uh, it was, I have a photo of it somewhere. It unfortunately fell off about two days ago. Uh, It was blue and pink and uh, colors I chose. And uh, I wore it at the wedding um, and was able to keep it on the way home. Um, But yeah, the the movie really got to me because uh, I think that Josephine Decker's febrile, emotionality of her of her filmmaking does lend itself to the bigness of YA, uh, the sort of hard on your sleeve, um, everything is the end of the world feelings of a YA movie, and especially this one, because it exists in a much more serious uh, and, and grievous uh, sort of cer- set of circumstances than most YA movies, um, which sort of build to, a lot of them build to or end with the death of a character from some sort of terminal illness. This one starts after the main character, whose name is Lenny. She's played by a really, uh, an actor, an up-and-coming actress that I really like named Grace Kaufman, who was also in a Sundance movie called Resurrection, uh, which is coming out this year, and we talked about it, and you have to see. Um, she lives in, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, uh, near the Redwoods, with her uh, grandmother, who's played by Cherry Jones. And Hell yeah. Bef- before the movie starts, uh, sorry? No, just Cherry Jones. Just Hell anytime yeah, Cherry you Jones. see, like, <laughs> she like enters the scene, you're like, "What? This is a Cherry Jones joint? This is." And, and elevated. she also lives with her stoner, uh, sort of stunted adolescent brother. Uh, sorry, uncle, who's played by Jason Siegel, um, whose name is Big, 
He's a big guy. But his name is Big is Walker. Jason Siegel's very tall. <laughs> and uh, before the movie starts, as we're told early on, uh, our main character, Lenny's sister, who is slightly older than she, dropped dead in the middle of a play rehearsal at school um, from a defect in her heart that they knew about. But and she inherited from her mother, who is also dead. Uh, and so the movie sort of begins in media res of the grieving process. And it's really just sort of about her going through that, but with the, this sort of love triangle that develops between, uh, she's a musician, she plays the clarinet, there's a new kid in school who's played by Jock Coleman. Sorry, I butchered his last name, like Patcheswood. Uh, Coleman. Um, Jock Coleman. Jock Coleman. Uh, and, uh, and then the much older boyfriend, or I guess now ex-boyfriend of her her dead sister, uh, who is played by Pico Alexander, who, you know, is still in love with, of course, you know, this is a fresh wound and he deeply misses her older sister. And because she is so much like her sister, there is sort of a forbidden attraction there, even if it is sort of an outgrowth of uh, the grieving process and not rooted in um, anything more romantic. And so she's sort of navigating this, this sudden interest from these two people uh a man and a boy her own age um with her grief and how much she misses her sister and giving up on the clarinet uh and um trying to trying to recognize as best as a teenager can let alone a teenager suffering from the myopia of, of mourning a loss this immense with the fact that the other people in her family are also grieving um and that really comes to a head later in the movie but I, I did you guys watch? I thought this was so beautifully done and moving, even though it is extremely YA. But I think it owns it in a way that that becomes almost a, more of an advantage than anything else. Uh, I watched part of it, and I, so I want to let Dave weigh in if he saw the whole thing. I saw the whole thing. It's fine, <laughs> but did you watch uh, it on I a mean, plane? Because that helps. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I did not watch it on a plane. Uh, the Josephine Decker parts, uh, great. Uh, I don't think a YA author should... I don't think really anybody should adapt their own work into a screenplay unless you mm-hmm. really know what you're doing. I think it's really hard with a YA movie where already you're dealing with sort of like the way YA stories are structured is event emotion, event emotion, event emotion, and you plug that in to something else. It doesn't really get more complex than that. Uh, what it does have is the illusion of complexity through themes, characters, you know, all your normal literary devices. When you take something like that and smash it into a movie that doesn't necessarily feel like the text is asking for the visual treatment, Josephine Dexter's visual treatment sort of clashes with what the movie's uh, doing for me. So for mm. a lot... How so? For a lo- well, for a lot of the movie, um, Lenny's basically talking about, like, living in a grief house and things are crumbling around her and it's her and this other guy and she wants to be with him to feel something but then also wants to be with him specifically because maybe he's the only one who feels exactly what she is uh meanwhile this is a whimsical world full of flowers and torn notebook pages that send secrets where they need to go and uh flower uh like um flower dancers uh when your eyes are closed music can like take on fantastical elements all great but it reads uh like a more imaginative uh person than our main character than or at least the version that our main character we're rooted in who at least at the beginning one of the things she has to overcome is she only has 
uh, uh, like a what does she read? Wuthering Heights. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. She's really into Wuthering Heights. Yeah, she has a very strict idea of what love and life should be, and the only people, even though there are people all around her who are telling her it's not should it should not be that way. We pick up, and the only person that's managed to actually let her see that is her sister, and her sister's gone. So her port to this magical world is gone. And at the beginning of the movie, we get magical flashbacks of the sister. And that makes a lot of visual sense with the story. But then that continues on as she's sort of like opening up. And at some point, it sort of felt like a lot of whimsy just for whimsy's sake. When she's going through some serious shit, the conclusions this movie comes to about grief are real and I think are very helpful. And I think Cherry Jones does an amazing job of carrying uh, the eventual conclusion through all of her scenes. Yeah, that uh, scene, the, that that big climactic scene between those two characters is very powerful. That's sort of when I, I lost yeah. it. I just feel like uh, Grace Kaufman, who plays Lenny, um, is a lot of time fighting the mood that the film is in at the point. So mm. there's like a lot of times where uh, she has grief reactions uh, to things and doesn't react in the best way as you know teenagers and i'm sure teenage girls but definitely teenagers and people doing in grief uh, happens and then it'll hit us with both voiceover and fantasy and like a sudden wide angle where we've been all close and it just feels um i don't know it feels almost like a sweeting spike jones shift all of a sudden in the middle of my very grounded uh, emotional movie I think it's just two movies that are operating on two very slightly different wavelengths. And because they're both waves, occasionally they over, they overlap and, you know, the movie hits that perfect tone, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are just many parts in between it where it feels chunky and twee it to a place where it's not, it's not furthering the characters. If I was in her imagined head the whole time, first of all, I think it'd be a lot darker uh, it would be like sec- the Batman, <laughs> right? It'd be like the Batman. I but am vengeance. There would be at least inside of her. I feel like more of a battle between her imagination, between how she thought things were perceived and how things like actually were. Because the conclusion that this movie comes to, I feel, kind of undersells the pedestal the sister is on because we never get to spend any time with her. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the very final moments of the movie do sort of, I, I think they reach a degree of emotionality, particularly, let's see, with Cherry Jones, that the, the genre almost can't entirely support. Um, and, like, the, the, the sort of syntax of the genre can't support, and so they have to sort of downplay it and dilute it a little bit and just get out as cleanly as they can. But I, I think what you're talking about, about the about Grace Kaufman, who plays the lead role, a- acting sort of against the emotion of certain scenes, is part of what I love so much about her performance, because mm. there is something very unintuitive about death. And, I, you know, I'm fortunate enough not to have had to grieve a loss of a sibling when I was 17 or 18. But um, I think that especially then it would have been, um, you know, very like everything you're doing is wrong. And that is a feeling that I think anyone can relate to or remember from being a teenager, whether it's to do with death or not. This feeling that, like, every impulse you have, every emotion you have is somehow the wrong one for that moment, um, morally or logically or, um, you know, contrary to what people tell you you should be doing or thinking. And having to accept that, reckon with it, 
you know, find some way to use it is such a big part of that journey and fused in this case with growing up um, and, and grief and growing up sort of being braided around each other in, in a way that felt more real to me than it often does in these movies, which are often just like old fashioned weepies and melodramas that are just happen to be about young people. Um, and because uh, they're, they're trying to milk the, the tragedy of like an 18 year old dying of cancer um, but don't really want to, and, and appeal to that audience, but don't really have any sort of special commentary on being young. And so yeah. I, I, and, and, you know, what Dave was talking about, about like the Spike Jones like sweeted feel, I mean, yeah, I mean like the, the, the aesthetic is, is intense. It's uh, there's a lot going on. I think that for those unfamiliar with Josephine Deckard's work, the, the, the most, and this is, this is not quite in the same style, um, but it does feel sometimes like a more like diaristic, uh, florid teenage girl, like Wes Anderson vibe. Um, I thought not, about Amelie yeah. a lot. Yeah. Mm, it's, yeah, it's a little bit of that. It's very, it's, it can be, a twee has taken on too negative a connotation, but it's, it has that energy to it where you're really sort of like in somebody's bedroom or like reading their diary in like a private facing way, like a lack of embarrassment of what they're thinking and feeling and how they're filtering the world through their own point of view. And I think that her style, which is always so intensely subjective suits that really well and allows the visual sort of grammar and geography of of the movie to assume the contours of what this character is thinking and what her, the inside of her head looks like. And, uh, that's just, uh, yeah, I just found it very, I found it really effective. Um, even when the plotting is, you know, like, I guess if if, if I were to narrow it down, that's the one thing that didn't work for me is I didn't feel like I was anchored in her perspective throughout the entire movie. For Mm. me, there were points in the movie where the movie took off to have its own great time. And I did have a great time with the movie when it decided to do that. But it, it, those weird mo- dissonant moments piled up to the point where when it comes time for her to have her big revelation, she says something to a Stone Jason Siegel character where it's like, we, used to, we have this thing about floating. And I'm like, that was a... I, my memory is you guys didn't discuss that. That was a <laughs> fantasy sequence where you guys were floating. Like, did you guys talk about... You had a thing about floating and I missed it. Or it's like there are just like uh, times where I feel like to be anchored in her perspective, it would almost be more switches between how she's feeling about herself. Like I feel like the performances where the movie is pretty all from start to beginning, just beautiful, like just all the way through. It's got it's got glints of sunlight. It's got blooming flowers. Bunch of redwoods. It's, yeah, it's got pet people talking about music and being passionate about music in nerdy ways, but completely sincerely. Like all these things, they're just so pleasant. Uh, but like this character kisses her dead girlfriend's boyfriend like pretty early on in the story. I dead just feel like boyfriend. this dead sister's boyfriend. I just feel like there there was a way to tether it a little bit more to the main character that being said in the world of i y a films you could stream at any given time uh right now i i don't have a problem with this movie that's the thing that just kept me it from being like perfect and keeping me from crying at the end and i think working as like a fine machine 
is just occasionally the direction was either different or at least um, different enough from where I thought the character was. I don't know who to blame for that. Katie, it seems did, like exactly oh, sorry, what no. they wanted to do. So Katie, I don't did wanna... you watch it to the point where she starts making out with her dead sister's boyfriend? I got to just to that part, basically. Um, I thought a lot about how much how obsessed I would have been with this movie if it had existed when I was a teenager. Like Amelie came a little bit after I was a teenager, but similar vibes. Um, because of everything that you guys have been talking about and the style and like how the style kind of feels like it takes teenage girl emotions seriously in a way that like sometimes even YA movies feel like they're not quite doing it. Um, mm. I haven't finished it, so I'm not going to say too much more, but I do, I do think the way that the style can kind of envelop you and um, kind of give big colors to these big emotions is really worthwhile. And I hope, I hope it finds its audience. Yeah, I do like a scene I... that Katie has coming up where her and uh, other love interests listen to music, and that's the <laughs> scene where women covered in flowers come out and do like a choreographed I'm, hand dance. I'm ready. And I, re- I really dig it. That I like, wish more of the movie got that weird. Um, yeah, that yeah. scene is that scene is wild. That scene it's very uh, Madeline's Madeline. Um, Josephine Decker like absolutely wilding out. Uh, and you know, there's definitely a part of you that's a little bit. As like an adult viewer, you know who's mostly embarrassed because you recognize yourself in it. Uh, it, it there's like a little bit of cringe going on, but um, I think that's what it's going for. Uh, just the purity of those emotions. Um, and the yeah, I I uh, I don't know. I just there's something about I I I just feel like I didn't judge the character when she does that. Like there is we're so we're so conditioned these days to be so like morally on top antagonistic towards and judgmental towards like characters for the choices that they make and obviously uh she sort of has a get out of jail free card you know much more than the 30 year old uh you know in real life i don't know what the character's supposed to be but uh pico alexander is like 30 um you know we're more judgmental of what he's doing he gets much less of a pass but uh she's going through this tough part of her life and everything is upside down and like you know things are going to happen but i i think yeah, I think that that is really valuable to me to see a movie, even if it's in the YA arena, that starts with such a sort of violation of the social contract um, done, you know, something that's unsustainable and, and maybe not healthy, but done for understandable, empathetic reasons that are you know part of the healing process and allows that to happen and doesn't you know, beat her over the head for that, but like makes it part of this, this process she's going through um, and handles it in a way that I found honest, but also mature without creening off to some, you know, more provocative movie where she and the dead sister's boyfriend run away together. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's also disarming because the second you realize that's where the movie's going is when he pops a boner and there's literally a boing sound effect. This is true. <laughs> I uh, like that part. This is true um this that is the movie i mean dave was right i mean like that is exactly what kind of movie this is uh not you know it's not always that much of a cartoon but like there is something very outsized about all of its its beats and emotions and uh it does not shy away from that and i think it wouldn't be a josephine decker movie if it did and she knows her strengths and has the confidence to use them um, where I think a lot of other people would, would try to find some sort of middle ground or, or water them down. And Apple TV let her do that. And there's a lot of money. I mean, the movie looks amazing. and There's a lot of money behind it, which is not something that can be said of her previous work. Um, I think we've seen the kind of audience and, and 
success that Coda was able to accrue over the last year. Mm -hmm. It's a different story that premiered at Sundance, won both the audience and Grand Jury Prize. It was always tip for Oscars. I don't know if they give the same attention to the the movies that just sort of pop up on their platform, but uh, it is there and you can watch it. And if this sounds like something you or a younger person in your life may enjoy or appreciate, um, uh, I recommend it. I, I had, uh, I had lunch when I was in LA with a old old friend of mine who, uh, tragically lost a sister. She loved very dearly when she was, and this happened not so long ago, but, um, and I, thought about it for a long time that we were having lunch and ultimately because she was comfortable talking about it and the conversation went in this direction recommended that she watch it i just i thought that you know seeing how how crystalline the emotions still were with her and are i mean she's very very in touch with her grief and uh um in a way that i find you know healthy and and, uh beautiful but i thought that this movie i warned her like when you are in the mood for something that is going to uh really mess you up um, I don't know. I think that this would be a nice solve, uh, S A L V E, not S O L V E for, for someone <laughs> in that, uh, state of mind. Um, yeah, the sky is everywhere. I mean, it's, it's the kind of movie they're not putting down theaters these days, but it doesn't mean it's streaming junk. It's, it's really, really interesting. It's on Apple TV plus with Coda and Severance, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. Get started on all of it. That does it for this week's show. Next week, we'll be talking about another movie that is streaming, which you should not write off as a result. It's After Yang, uh, which is, it's great. We'll, I mean, we'll talk about it next week. It's going to be on Showtime, uh, so you can watch it a lot of different ways. This is our last episode before Yang. Yeah, exactly. Think, think, <laughs> think of it that way. Um, in the meantime, oh, and Patches will be back too. But in the meantime, tell the people who you are. Uh, that means if Patches is gone, David starts. Oh. Uh, ha! It's my time to shine. Uh, I am David. Uh, I talked even more than usual this episode, believe it or not. Uh, well, you didn't you interrupt can... people as much. so Well, there that. were fewer people to interrupt. That's true. Um, one in particular. But yeah, you can find me on Twitter if you want even more talking uh, guests on Twitter. David Ehrlich. Find me on IndieWire, where I just posted earlier today that we're recording this, a very long review of The Batman uh, that I think is pretty spoiler-free in case you want some context um you can find all of us on itunes at fighting in the war room uh leave us a review on itunes at fighting in the war room we'll read it live on the show talk to us about how much you love plenty ice cream and tell me in detail where i can fucking get some thank you <laughs> uh i'm david gonzalez you can follow me on twitter at da7e you can also email all of us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. That's where your international reviews go, so you make sure we see them. And you go to fightinginthewarroom.com. It's a website. I know that podcasts and websites aren't like two things you put together now that you just have a device that just delivers MP3s <laughs> to your ears every day. But we're old enough that we just did, we just did it the way we thought we everybody did it. So we have a website. There you could find all of our old episodes, uh, other stuff, Star Wars specials, blah blah quarter quells. Check it out, fightinginthewarroom.com. Uh, and I'm Katie Rich. Um, you can find me on Twitter at K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And at uh, Vanity Fair, I did it in reverse order today. And on the Little Goldman podcast, there was a lot more SAG Awards talk. 
Uh, you can also find us all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where uh, I would love to hear about YA movies that you also actually like, because I do have a soft spot for them. Or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of the Batman, what is your favorite overly complicated cinematic death? And thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. No saw. Where I go, I always feel you so, because you're everything.